0: Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costello here with Douglas G. Duncan, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at Fannie Mae. In this position, Doug is responsible for forecasts forecast and analysis of the economy, the housing, and the mortgage markets. Duncan also oversees strategic research regarding the potential impact of external factors on the housing industry. Named one of Bloomberg's 50 Most Powerful People in Real Estate, Duncan is Fannie Mae's source for information and analysis on demographics and the external business and economic environment. As you may know, we have a lot of guests that come on the show and speculate about where we are in the current market cycle and the future of the economy. But in today's episode, we gaze into Doug's crystal ball as we discuss the current state of the housing market and what the future holds in store. Topics include supply and demand, interest rates, unemployment trends, the inverted yield curve, and how the next recession may impact real estate investors. Before we jump right into today's episode, I want to let everybody know that the Real Estate CPA will be putting on special virtual workshops in October, November, and December of this year, where we will discuss year-end tax tips for the first 15 to 20 minutes, and then open up the room for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to your last-minute tax questions before the year ends. Seats will be limited, and you can sign up by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual-workshops, or by following the link in the show notes below. Doug, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. We're excited to have you on, as a lot of our guests and clients are speculating on where we are in the current cycle, the economy, what the future of the housing market looks like. And uh, from what we've learned, you do actually have an award, uh, at a crystal ball. Uh, would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and what you do as Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at Fannie Mae?
2: Sure. Uh, of course, one piece of uh, our responsibility is, is forecasting. So we forecast macroeconomic activity housing market activity, and mortgage market activity. And then we do that for internal purposes for the financials of the firm and for external purposes for many of our business partners uh, who may not have forecasting units of their own. We provide those kinds of services as part of our relationship. I also, in addition to the forecasting, have four other units. One is a market research group that looks at internal uh, performance characteristics, and then the uh, loan and borrower performance characteristics uh, in the marketplace. Then we have one group that focuses on multifamily research uh, and assists our the leadership in the multifamily business unit with making decisions on investments in different markets. We have a survey unit which surveys a thousand consumers a month, and it surveys a random sample of the lenders once a quarter, and we put out a whole bunch of information studies out of those three Also, some work out of the, that market research group, and I have one group that does basic research and works with the academic community on uh, longer-term projects. So, we have about 30 people all together. It's kind of an unusual uh, chief economist position, but it's a very, it's a lot of fun. Uh have great staff to work with.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Mike. I'm glad to hear there's some uh, multifamily stuff going on in there too. A lot of our clients do invest in multifamily. So, I mean, I guess the first place to start uh, in understanding where we are with the housing, you know, supply and all that is with supply and demand. So what does the current state of uh, the supply and housing market look like?
2: Um, well, our estimates are, we're somewhere between producing somewhere between 250 and 300,000 units less than we need to on an annual basis to house all the demographics that we have in an affordable way. So the fact that, that we're undersupplied relative to the current level of demand suggests that there's a reason we've seen a strong house price appreciation on the single-family side and the uh, rent appreciation that we've seen on the, on the multifamily side. So there's still a shortage, particularly at the entry level. In the, it appears that the uh, costs across the country, no matter where you are, for developing affordable entry-level properties are higher than they were, but demand is strong in that space. So if you use the traditional measures of supply, which are the months it would take to sell the existing available stock at the current sales pace, on the new homes front, it's uh, probably, in some markets, it's less than three months. And on the existing homes uh, front, also the case. So... Part of the issue there is builders have been increasing production. They're they're finding difficulty finding affordable land and skilled labor. That's been ongoing for some time. And in addition, the boomers are doing what they said they were going to do, and they're aging in place. So they're not freeing up that turnover stock. And to some degree, the Gen X population is doing the same. They're actually just expanding the house they own because they already own the land. Uh, those two things mean that the turnover in the stock is much lower and leading to some to supply constraints, at, particularly at the entry level price points. Okay, right.
0: so it sounds like there's some fundamental drivers there that are favorable towards investors. There's a constrained supply and there's very high demand. Does the supply factor is that also apply to the multifamily side? Is there also a shortage of multifamily housing available? Uh, is that like baked in there to those projections?
2: It is. It is true that there there's also demand for additional construction in the multifamily space. Part of the analog and multifamily to what I was just saying in single family is that, again, entry level in the rental space, That's we tend to look at multifamily properties as A, B, and C properties where A would be high price, high quality, B would be mid-price, mid-quality, and C would be lower price but lower quality. And no one's building the C properties, which are the most affordable and where a lot of folks that eventually want to move up to own a home will live so that they can save more. But the fact that most of the construction has been in the upper tiers has meant that that transition has been a little more difficult for people who would like to move from rented to owned. You're absolutely right about the benefits to investors in this space. Uh, Rents have appreciated uh, pretty strongly. There's also been the price appreciation on properties, which has made available potential capital gains uh, when the investor wants to decide to exit the property. Those two things have been true. to some degree, the price appreciation has reached affordability uh, constraint levels. So we have started to see starting in 2017, a slowdown in the pace of appreciation. So house prices nationally are still rising, but not as fast as they were. One of the implications of that in the near term is with interest rates having come back and the supply constraint still being operable, the reduction in interest rates doesn't give us consumers as much buying power as they might have in a market with greater supply, because part of the influence of that decline in interest rates is to accelerate house prices. So from the, whether you're an investor or whether you're buying to be an owner-occupant, that both of those things will be true. That said, one thing I haven't commented on is that you do have to be aware of the differences between local markets. So when we talk about national house price appreciation being at 4% or something in that ballpark, it varies widely by area, by region, by local market. And also within markets, the pace of appreciation of high, medium, and low-priced homes is very different. In every market that we look at, Low-priced homes are appreciating faster in terms of price than middle or upper-priced homes, and that's that supply constraint uh, for entry-level borrowers.
3: So as a real estate investor, how can I kind of package up everything that you just talked about and understand what maybe my major risks are for placing investments today or over the next 12 to 24 months? Like, what should I be looking out for?
2: Well, there's several things. One is, is the market at such a price point that you're going to start to see jobs migrate? Uh, because it, the basic driver of housing is demographics, But the thing that enables housing within that demographic is employment and income. And so you should know in the market that you're investing in, you should know what uh, the trends in employment and income And then, how do those things relate to the available supply and the price appreciation component, which would be where capital gains would come from, and the rent appreciation, which is going to be moderated or accelerated based on whether supply is coming into the market uh, at any particular pace? If job growth is fairly rapid and supply expansion is slow, you would probably expect to see some rent appreciation and some capital gain appreciation over that time frame. If this is a market that's already expensive and for workforce level folks, the, that is hourly wage and, and uh, lower salary folks, it's becoming unaffordable, then there's a risk that businesses start to relocate to more affordable areas and that would reduce demand for some of the rental properties. So I would be looking at those elements of the dynamic in that um, in whatever markets that you're looking at. Got it. And so you mentioned
3: the demographics being one of the key drivers uh, for, the, for demand for housing. So maybe at a macro level, what do the current demographic trends say about demand both today and maybe over the coming years?
2: The demand is strong today. The uh, millennials are driving the demand curve. They started, they became the drivers starting in about 2015. There's at least six to eight more years before that age group reaches its peak home buying age. So the trend line is good. There's still a large number of adult children living at home, not all time record, but not far from all time record. All that is households that are going to unfold. Most of them initially into rentals, and then after that, they'll make some migration after they, uh, typically after they marry and have children, uh, then they migrate toward the ownership or first renting single-family properties and then buying a home. So several years to come in that space, what happens with immigration will, will either accelerate or not accelerate. That, and obviously, you're aware there's a big public discussion about what's the proper uh, level and structure of immigration from a policy perspective. That's something that will moderate it. And there are gateway cities for immigrants, which will be impacted uh, by the policy decisions that are made in that space. So, if, if you're in one of those gateway cities like New York or Chicago or Miami or Los Angeles, uh, it's worth noting how immigration is impacting uh, those markets. But as far as the core of the citizen base, it's the millennials that they're the largest population group we have ever had. One note, though, is several years down the road, because they delayed marriage and childbirth a couple of years longer than other cohorts when they were that same age, that means the next generation will actually be smaller, unless there is uh, immigration which replaces that because they'll have less years to have babies because they didn't start until later than other cohorts have in the past. So right now the, the demographic outlook is good for the next five to ten years. Obviously, to some degree, it, it gets modulated by the changes in economic growth, and therefore, income growth, and also by interest rate. Um, but those are more cyclical factors uh, than they are structural factors.
0: Got it. Got it. So, so kind of sum that, that little part up there. Basically, the moneyals are driving the current demand, and while at the same time, the baby boomers aren't moving out of there, out of where they've been living. So because of that, the demand may be remaining static on the baby boomer side, but the, the millennials are driving it. And the boomers, actually, what I was trying to say was the boomers are causing that shortage in supply because they're not moving out of their houses and opening up those, that housing supply for those millennials.
2: Um, yeah, it's, it's typical that the, the vast majority of homes bought by first-time buyers are existing homes. The new homes built for entry-level bars are a very small share of the market historically. So the fact that the boomers and or Gen Xers are not moving and freeing up that entry-level stock is a supply hurdle for would-be buyers, for some buyers.
0: Okay. And I know we know that another driver of, of house demand for housing is the interest rates. And while people will always buy houses, regardless of the interest rate, uh, having such a low interest rate in this current economy is definitely you know driving the housing prices up for sure. How do you see those interest rates trending over the coming years?
2: Well, we don't see a reason to believe that there will be a dramatic change from Uh, current levels of interest rates in our formal forecast through 2020 has mortgage rates essentially flat through that time period, and possibly even a little bit down in 2021. uh, The latter half of 2020, our forecast for economic growth is weaker than what growth is today, and that would tend to be accompanied by lower interest rates. Then after that time period, picking up some. We saw an experiment in 2018 with interest rates going up about a full percentage point across the year. And that certainly did slow housing uh, coming into 2019. It has uh, started to, housing has started to pick up again. And because rates came back down most of that 100 basis points. So it is one thing to bear in mind that. With uh, we've had low interest rates for such a long period that there is uh, some significant sensitivity from an affordability perspective to upside movements in interest rates. As I said, we don't—it's not in our forecast that we would see dramatic shifts. Uh, we did see last year a, a full percentage point rise. That I could see conditions. Doing that again over the next year or two, particularly if there are international agreements settled on trade, which has been a volatility inducer and, a, and a, it has tamped down investment. If, if that's cleared, you might see pick up an investment and some increase in demand for credit, which would push it, it rates up a bit. And so because they've been low for so long, there that tends to cause a pause in the market. But to your point earlier about people always buy houses, if you go back to 1979, 1980, mortgage rates were 15%. And there were still homes being sold. The number being sold and the size of those homes were different. But people have always lived in a structure built on land. Somewhere near they've worked in a structure built on land, I think that will always be true. So whether it's an owned property uh, and rented property, property, an apartment unit, uh, people who are going to live somewhere. So in the very long term, real estate is a good place to be.
0: Got it. One quick follow-up question to that is you know, for say I'm a multifamily investor, right? I have, you know, I have a a five year note on my property and I'm concerned that in five years from now, I'm not gonna be able to refinance out at a favorable rate is that something that a multifamily investor do you feel should be concerned about at this point or do you think the rates would still you know five say five years out still be low enough to be able to lock in a favorable rate if they have to refinance after five years
2: well i don't I don't see anything on the horizon that suggests there will be a dramatic rise in interest rates for one thing I think the fed has been trying hard to generate some inflation with very little success so if the concern is about inflation. In current conditions, I don't see that because the Fed has only gotten to its target of 2% inflation five of the last 25 years. So not a very good record. Uh, That does not mean that if the U.S. continues to expand its deficits and therefore the outstanding debt, that at some point investors will start uh, wanting some risk premium or inflation premium in interest rates. That that couldn't drive interest rates up. It certainly could, uh, but there's no evidence of it today. And so, the other question then is, what would accelerate economic growth at a very high level that could push up interest rates? And uh, you know, we don't we just don't see anything right now on the horizon that would do that. Actually, global growth is slowing. It probably will have picked up by the by the time of five years from now. But does that mean we'll see a dramatic rise in interest rates? Uh, No, we do look out about five years and we run scenarios. And you could characterize a scenario where uh, rates could go up a couple of hundred basis points. So if that happened, you'd be at about five and a half percent interest. But from a historical perspective, in the single family market, the average mortgage rate, 30-year fixed rate mortgage rate from World War II out to the year 2000 was 6%. So even were rates to go up 200 basis points from where they are today, you still wouldn't get to that 6% number.
3: Very interesting. So you kind of mentioned immigration a little bit ago, and I kind of want to touch on that. Politics aside, what are some of the current trends in immigration, and how is that going to impact the demand for housing?
2: There's two, two aspects. One is the level of immigration, and two is the size of households in immigrant groups. So the level of immigration prior to the recession up to say around the 2008 time period was about uh, in the early part of the 2000s was about 1.6 million per year then with the recession it fell to about 1.1 million per year simply because the unemployment rate went so high that the job availability went had fallen off, and so that's obviously a significant attractor for immigrants. That has risen from the 1.1 up to about 1.3 million uh, as an annual average uh, the last four years or so. So we are still seeing significant immigration, irrespective of all the headlines about it, and the fact that immigrant uh, groups in general have larger households suggests that they will help sustain the demand for housing. It's also the case that among many immigrant groups, I haven't seen an update to this research. It was about a decade ago there was some research that showed that the demand to own a home was actually stronger among immigrant groups than it was among the domestic population. But there's a you know there's a period of rental before that, that uh, aspiration is realized. So they impact both the rental and the owned property spaces.
3: Fascinating, fascinating. Very interesting to jump into all that. And then the unemployment rates, we, we talked about that, or you, you mentioned that briefly as well. Uh, can you talk about the unemployment trends over the next couple of years and how that might impact investors?
2: Yeah, we're, uh, we are at 50-year lows in the unemployment rate, and that is with people having still been coming off the sidelines. So there was a lot of discussion before the 2016 tax cut about unemployment was already at 4.5%. So a tax cut was going to increase demand, and you were going to start to see inflation because wage rates were going to go up because there just weren't workers available. The counter argument to that was, well, with current tax levels, people's incentives to go to work. Because of the the level of after tax income is not sufficient. If you cut taxes, their after tax return to working will go up, and they'll come off the sideline. And that's exactly what happened. There's been over the, the last two to three years, there's been a, a significant increase in the uh, number of folks in of working age populate, within the population of working age that have come off the sidelines back into the workforce. So that's good news. And as they accumulate savings, they they become better renters and ultimately homeowners. We do expect with uh, what I mentioned earlier about a slowdown in economic activity in the second half of 2020 into 2021, that there will be a modest uptick in the unemployment rate. But it's primarily because job growth won't be as fast because the economy is growing slower as the number of people entering the workforce. So it just means that wage appreciation probably won't be quite as fast. So it, it could be the case that there might be a little bit of a slowdown in rent appreciation, but certainly nothing that suggests uh, it will reverse itself. Uh, it might just be a little bit slower growth. Awesome. And
3: the the yield curve, so kind of like talking about this slowdown in growth at the, at the second half of 2020, we've heard a lot about that as well. And typically, part of that conversation is the yield curve. So we know that it is inverted or has been inverted for a while. What does this mean? And in terms of the slowdown that we could expect in 2020, does that mean we're in a full-blown recession, or is it just a little bit of a slower economic growth that we're experiencing?
2: Well, first of all, when people talk about the inverted yield curve, what they mean is that typically shorter-term interest rates are lower than longer-term interest rates. So if you were uh, buying or taking a loan of 90 days, the interest rate on that would be lower than if you're taking a loan of two years repayment. So typically that's measured off of the, the U.S. Treasury bills and notes interest rates because that is viewed as the risk-free interest rate. So recently, there have been actually on a sustained basis, the the three-month uh, treasury bill rate has been higher than the 10-year treasury rate, which implies an inverted yield curve. Uh, not as many people look at that as look at the two-year treasury versus the 10-year treasury. That has been intermittently Inverted, and there's a correlation between an inversion of the yield curve and a subsequent recession. And that varies. The time frame between the inversion and when you see a recession has varied, but it's roughly 12 to 15 months. However, there have been instances where the yield curve inverted and there was no recession. So it's a correlation. It's not clear that it's a causation. So uh, it's not a perfect predictor, in other words. Now, why would it invert? What might it, the market be saying? market might be saying, well, the Federal Reserve's monetary policy is too tight because it's short-term interest rates that the, the Federal Reserve targets to, to change or influence economic activity. So they might be saying, well, they're too tight, and they should lower short-term interest rates, and that would normalize the curve. That's one argument. The second one is that it's simply an indication that the market is slowing. So returns today are greater than what should be expected, say, 5 to 10 years from now. So it's it's suggesting that there will be a gradual slowdown over a longer period of time. The third one is that if you look around the globe, the U.S. is clearly the best performing economy that is a mature economy. And it is also a safe economy in which to invest. And so with all the volatility globally, geopolitical issues, there's undoubtedly some capital flow into the uh, longer-term U.S. treasuries. So as you know, if you bid the price up, the interest rate falls. uh, And to the extent that foreign capital is flowing in and bidding up treasury prices, that's driving interest rates down. So there's at least those three arguments for why rates might be inverted intermittently or at the present time.
3: So we've talked about a lot. We've talked about supply and demand. We've talked about constraints on supply. We've talked about demographics, immigration, interest rates, unemployment rates, and now the yield curve. When you, as an economist, are trying to look into your real crystal ball that you do have, (laughs) uh, when when you're looking into that and and you're trying to predict out or you're just trying to gain an understanding of where are we going to be at this time next year, two, three, four years down the road. Is there any one factor that weighs more heavily, uh, or is it just kind of you really have to look at the combination of factors to understand the story that they're painting?
2: Well, we do look at the combination, but a key question is employment. It's probably after looking at the number of people and how they're forming households, the next most important thing is, are they going to have a job? And then the following thing from that is with that job, is the pay growing or not? So at the end of the day, people don't buy houses if they don't have jobs and growing incomes. So that, that's really the most important combination of things. Um, interest rates are a short-term influence on whether you, to some degree, on the timing with which you get into the market or, or what. What size of property or that kind of thing that you can afford, uh, but really it's the it's the core demographics tied to jobs, tied to income that are that are the most important uh, factors.
0: Got it. Got it. So just thinking, you know, if there is going to be this recession or pullback in say mid twenty twenty at some point, what real impact would it have? A major impact on the housing market as it did in, as say the last recession did in mm-hmm. two thousand eight, or is it going to be a more milder effect?
2: Our thinking is uh, that housing may actually be the sector that would provide a cushion to a slowdown. And so if you think of unemployment today is at 3.5%, let's suppose it goes all the way up to 7.5%. You still have 92.5% of the people that we're working are working. Some of them may have hours cut back and they might not see the wage increases, but there's still 92.5% of the folks working. Given that the biggest problem in housing today is supply, the builders will undoubtedly continue to build and their credit costs to borrow money to build will be lower because in a recession, the Federal Reserve will certainly lower interest rates. Those lower interest rates and the slower price appreciation because of the rise in unemployment easing the demand curve suggests that house prices are likely to flatten out and mortgage interest rates will be lower, so that'd be a pretty good time to buy a house. So it seems to us that in a, that relatively mild uh, version of recession, that housing could actually be the star or certainly one of the stars in keeping the recession becoming more serious. We also have some degree of confidence that the loan quality of outstanding mortgages is such that the rise in delinquency and foreclosure will be nothing like what we saw in the 2007 to 2009 time period. In fact, on the purchase side, the millennials who, and we can see their loans going through our system, are much more conservative in terms of the share of their income they're willing to commit to housing than prior generations. The share of them that commit over 30% of their annual income to housing is much lower. So that being the case, it makes them more resilient to a slowdown in their income. If, if part of their income is on overtime in a recession, typically overtime hours shrink, Uh, Or if they had a second job, sometimes second jobs go away. But the fact that they haven't overcommitted in terms of the share of their income for buying a house suggests they would be able to weather that better than previous cohorts who extended themselves further. So those are a couple of reasons we think in a relatively mild recession that housing would actually do pretty well.
0: That's amazing to hear. Um, Is there anything that we haven't discussed today or we haven't touched on that real estate investors should be keeping an eye on over the next few years?
2: I think, you know, when I think about an investor, if they have a portfolio of things, one of the things is what happens to the returns, relative returns for different asset classes. And housing's pretty stable. So over the long term, it's a pretty stable asset group. And so Uh, To some degree, you you can think of it as offsetting the volatility and some of the other classes of assets that you might want to to be more opportunistic in investing in. So, um, you do want to watch the local markets. The phrase is always that all real estate is local and absolutely local conditions impact things. If there is a major employer, let's say they employ 10% of the people in some market, if that employer closes, or it has to shut down, that can be a shock to returns in that market. So you need to understand the dynamics of the local market uh, that, you're, that you're investing in.
0: Got it. Got it. So earlier in, in the episode, in the beginning, you had mentioned that you know you and your team, you put out a lot of reports and what have you in relations to the research that your team does. Is there a place where our listeners would be able to, say, learn more about that research and, and, and be able to realize? Oh, Absolutely. That?
2: Yeah, absolutely. On the Fannie Mae website, we have a, a, a economics and research uh, space on the website. All of it's free. We don't charge for anything. The, we, the monthly consumer survey results are up there. The uh, quarterly lender surveys, and we do all kinds of special topics. How are consumers thinking about housing and technology? How do they shop? How does technology impact their behavior in terms of taking mortgages? Lots of, uh, lots of additional information. It's all there free. But we also have something called the Exchange, which is a database that can be accessed for folks that includes uh, some of this uh, data. If you want to look at the raw data itself, a fair amount of the data behind those things are there if you'd like to uh, play around with it yourself. And the instructions on how to access uh, the Exchange are there on the website as well. Awesome. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to drop that into the show notes for the listeners so
0: they can check that out. Uh, Doug, it's been been a pleasure having you on today. We really want to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show and share your knowledge with our listeners. And they're going to find it super helpful. We're not going to have to be, uh, say, jumping around in in what ifs anymore. We have some solid information we can go on. So definitely appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Hey, everybody. uh,
0: We're here for the debrief segment of today's podcast. We did just have Doug Duncan uh, named one of Bloomberg slash Businessweek's 50 Most Powerful People in Real Estate. And he actually does have a crystal ball.
3: He does so, have a crystal ball. Yes. Uh, it's a real thing. thing. somebody He, he received he, it as a gift, I think. Is that what he said?
0: Yeah. It was, it was, I think it was an award for, I guess, I forgot exactly what he said, but that's pretty cool.
3: <laughs> so, you know, I, I asked, what is that one key thing that you that you kind of look for whenever you're looking? at? Like, like We talked about a lot of things, but what's the one major thing that you should look at when you're trying to determine the health of the economy. And he he said that it was the employment or the unemployment factor. And his methodology was that, you know, people go and they buy households, they establish households. The next question is, are they going to have jobs, right? And then the next question is, is their pay going to increase? And what Doug was saying is that he wasn't really seeing any sort of significant negative indicator there, at least going into 2020, 2021, which I think it's definitely a good thing for real estate investors. 100%.
0: 100%. And you know, one of the things that basically I got out of this is right now, there's some fundamental supply and demand uh, indicators going on here that, that are indicating a favorable outcome for investors over the next few years, because there's basically a shortage of two hundred and fifty to 300,000 units in the market right now, while there's very strong demand from the millennial demographic, and there will continue to be a strong demand for the, uh, the millennial demographic as it hasn't quite peaked yet, at least over the next 10 years, is what he said. Basically, at the affordable housing level, there's going to be strong demand there, even throughout a recession. Now, even though unemployment might rise a little bit, interest rates are still going to remain low. Uh, people will still be able to, uh, yeah. if you're an investor, right, that's what I'm trying to say. If you're an investor in the in real estate, you're investing in that, that B and C class asset, that affordable housing uh, level, you should be covered throughout the next recession. You also won't have to worry about the interest rates being detrimental should you have to refinance throughout this period.
3: I also really like when he went into the fact that the housing sector will be the sector, in in his opinion, that will kind of cushion us during the uh, potentially impending recession here in 2020, right? So we'll have some slower price appreciation, housing prices will potentially flatten out and mortgage payments will be lower. But what he was saying is that that creates a a good time to buy a house. I also really like that he kind of went into the fact that loan quality is a lot better these days and that millennials tend to be a little bit more conservative. They're not allocating as much of their income to housing, just meaning that they're not spending as much on the housing, or at least that's what I deduced from that.
0: No, 100%. I got got the same thing out of that. So, I mean, just to summarize this all up for everybody who's listening here, um, basically uh, strong demand in the housing market over the current years, shortage of supply, interest rates will remain and continue to be relatively low over the coming years. Unemployment might creep up a little bit as the economy slows, but overall, you're still going to see that strong demand and it's a good time to be an investor. And especially because like Doug had mentioned, the housing market might be the cushion over the next few years, which is great. Um, moving right into the Q and a segment. Today, we do have a question. And that question is from Keith. And Keith asks, does being the actual syndicator, uh, the general partner, classify one as having the real estate professional status?
3: Good question, Keith. So being a general partner in a real estate syndication could potentially allow you to qualify as a real estate professional. But In order to qualify as a real estate professional, it's all about the hours that you spend in a real estate trader business. There's quite a few uh, real estate trades or businesses listed. It's uh, leasing, selling, building, developing, managing. If you're doing any of those sorts of activities, then those hours will count towards the real estate professional status. But you do have to be in a real estate trader business. So you can't be a limited partner and be able to count those hours, but you can be a general partner and count those hours. But what you're looking for here is you're looking to achieve 750 hours spent in a real estate trader business and more than half of your time in all material participation activities. If you have a W-2 job, that is a material participation activity. So if I have a W-2 job and I am a general partner in a real estate syndication, I can count my real estate syndication hours uh, for, the, for the 750 hours, but I also have to exceed my W-2 job hours. So if I have 2,000 hours that I spend in my W-2 job, I have to spend 2,001 hours in a real estate trader business or real estate trader business is if we're aggregating them. So the question would be, if you're a GP in a real estate syndicate, does that give you enough time to meet the 750 hour threshold and that greater than half your time thresholds? So that's the first question. Then the second question is, are we also materially participating in our rental real estate activities? If all you're doing is doing the GP piece of the real estate syndicating, then the answer is most likely yes. But those are kind of the two two factors there. So we have to we have to hit the time requirements on the real estate professional status. But then we have to look to material participation and make sure that we're hitting the time requirements
0: there as well. All right. Good stuff, Brennan. Glad to hear that if you are a general partner, in some cases, you might just be a real estate professional. Um, that's the only question that we have for today's episode. Remember everybody, if you want to have your questions answered by us, go to www.realestatecpa.com slash podcast with an S. Drop your question in that box. We may just answer live. And until next time, Tom Costelli, Brandon Hall, signing out.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great
2: rest of your week.